Nina Goa. And I'm Max Lydias. We're psychiatry residents at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And welcome to the History of Madness podcast. In this podcast, we will be telling some of our favorite stories from the history of psychiatry. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of History of Madness. Let's talk a bit about why we started this podcast. Yeah. So we were at uh, Max's house party, Mm -hmm. and he's been talking about wanting to start a podcast forever. And I said, hey, why don't we do a podcast on the history of psychiatry? Because when I was in college, I actually took a seminar class called the history of madness and it was very interesting and so we have this shared interest in history yeah and it was it was very fortuitous that you're actually willing to (laughs) to go along with this um so here we are now recording our first episode finally yeah um and i just always love how some of our older attendings they have all these stories to tell about the history of psychiatry and they're so well read and i feel like as you know, modern day psychiatry residents, we don't do as much of that reading. So this is just an opportunity for us to read a bit more, understand more about our field. I love it. Yeah. For this first episode, we thought we would tackle one of the biggest episodes in the history of psychiatry, and that's the history of the lobotomy. Sounds great. Yeah. So, um, for this episode, we, we each round up reading a, a handful of sources, including a handful of books. And wh- the, one of the things I was struck with when reading about this is that the phenomenon of lobotomy, it's not only a, like a treatment that kind of ran amok, but it's a story of a handful of personalities in the history of psychiatry and how they interacted with the patients at the time. So uh, to begin... There's a long history of a connection between the brain and uh, the idea of madness or mental illness. This goes all the way back to the Stone Age with people drilling holes in people's skulls to release evil spirits. It's a procedure called trepanation. And we know that actually people survived this. So it was at least a relatively prominent uh, method of treatment. So the idea of using some kind of brain surgery to treat mental illness goes back a really long time. But where I think the the history of the intersection of psychosurgery and psychiatry really coalesces is in 1935. And you can actually trace it down to the moment where I think lobotomy really was begun. It's at the second annual neurological congress in London. It was in the summer of 1935. And to understand what happened at this conference, um, I think it's important to understand where the field was at the time. So over the preceding century before this, there had been a movement away from the criminalization of mental illness towards more of a custodial model. So patients would be kind of housed in asylums where the thought was they could just be left alone apart from society where they wouldn't hurt themselves and wouldn't hurt anyone else. This was kind of one way of looking at it. And while they were there, um, kind of a handful of different approaches towards interacting with these people kind of took shape. One was very punitive, like the idea that maybe they've done something wrong and that maybe they just needed to snap out of it. So this was kind of was considered like the moral treatment of mental illness. Like they've done something wrong, so 
let's let's fix that thing that they've done wrong and get them back into society that way or at the very least punish them for what they've done to society that was definitely falling out of favor the newer approaches to the treatment of mental illness were things like um, Freudian psychoanalysis. So that's the idea that there's unconscious drives that um, influence the way people behave and think and interact, and these can result in mental illnesses. And that the treatment for this was psychoanalysis, talk therapy. Another group thought that there was a biological basis for mental illness. And this resulted in some of the kind of weirder treatments that you heard about at the time. So one of the big, one of the, actually the biggest causes of mental illness back in the day was actually syphilis. So eventually it was discovered that you could treat syphilis by causing fevers. And one of the most reliable ways to actually cause fevers was to give a person malaria. So what developed was this malarial treatment of syphilis. And this spawned a giant boom of biologically based treatments. Maybe there was an organic cause to mental illness that could be treated and cured. So you have things like um, fever cures with malaria. You have things like warm and cold water baths, which operated on the theory that if you drew blood away from the brain in like a warm water bath, that you could actually influence the like expression of mental illness. So you'd have people sitting in basically hot tubs to see if that would impact their mental illness. And you had other things like straight jackets or padded rooms or other kinds of what we'd consider pretty barbaric interventions. These definitely sound like things you see in horror movies about yeah. asylums. Yeah, it really is. And, and when you think of an asylum, this is, this is really the picture that you should have in your mind, kind of dirty, overcrowded, underfunded. And with, with anything that people don't understand, often there's quite a lot of hostility towards the people who are housed in these asylums, people with mental illness. And now there's there's one more, there's there's kind of two more groups that I haven't mentioned. I'll, I'll come to the, si- the second one in a bit. But one of the most pertinent for, the, for our story is kind of an offshoot of the biological branch of interpretation of mental illness. And that was the fact that, or the idea that all mental illnesses had like an anatomical substrate. There was something wrong in the brain, something f- like physically wrong in the brain, something that could be seen and diagnosed and identified and could therefore be interacted upon by Even in the 22nd, 21st century, you haven't discovered what the biological thing is. Yeah, I know. Well, and if you think about, um, these were, these were independent camps. They were very like the psychoanalysts thought it was in, it was utterly ridiculous that there would be a like anatomical substrate for mental illness. That it couldn't make sense, and the the biological and the anatomical people who would explain like mental illness thought that Freudian psychoanalysis was just a waste of time. You were talking to this patient that clearly had something medically wrong that could be addressed, and I think both of those sound perhaps equally untrue today. I I think now we recognize that it's a mix of both, that there's not a hard line between organic and inorganic or between like noumenal and phenomenal. These are like just a continuous thing. The biopsychosocial model. Exactly, exactly, exactly how we think now. Um, And then there's the last group, the group that I didn't mention. So remember, this was London in 1935. And if you think about what was going on in the world in 1935, so you have these movements all across the world, Europe, Americas, with kind of this 
custodial approach, housing people in asylums um, with perhaps some hope that they would get better with these biological or um, psychoanalytic treatments. But then there was the final camp, which I think was exemplified best by the attendance to this meeting in 1935 uh, from Germany, who had recently passed the Nuremberg Laws, which not only which forbade intermarriage between Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Germans. And as a part of that, um, or shortly as a result soon thereafter, they actually introduced a new innovation into the history of mental health care. Do you have any idea what that is? The gas chamber. Okay, yeah. so these are the eugenicists? Yes, these are the eugenicists. And like I, like I mentioned, they were very prominent in Germany. This was um, as the Nazis were coming to power. This was two years after Hitler's rise to power. Um, but it was actually also quite popular in the U.S. And really, um, it wasn't until after World War II when it kind of came to light what the Nazis had been doing that uh, eugenics became unpopular worldwide. But there was, a, there was certainly a strong undercurrent of eugenics across the nation or across the world, rather. So I talked about all these different perspectives. These actually were all represented in just about equal number at this um, second annual neurological conference in London. So to take you to the scene then, so you had these vehemently opposed groups of psychiatrists, neurologists, uh, internists, psychosurgeons, eugenicists, they were all collected in this meeting. And the goal of the meeting was to try and understand the function of the brain. And I think at this point, it's, it's worthwhile to highlight a few of, we've talked about the perspectives that were represented, but there's a handful of like really prominent characters at the meeting too. Number one was Ivan Pavlov, which was, this was one of the last <laughs> conferences he would attend. So he's famous for his um, theory of conditioning, which is still widely regarded today. Um, and it's perhaps more on the psychological bent of those, those several perspectives. Uh, also in attendance was a man named Igaz Moniz. So his, he's actually a fascinating, fascinating guy. Um, he was a Portuguese gentleman. His real name is Antonio uh, Cetano de Abreu Fiere, which is a pen name because he actually was an anti-monarchist. So he was a, a Portuguese uh, Republican. So he wrote and demonstrated quite vociferously against the monarchy um, in Portugal at the turn of the 20th century, which was a very dangerous thing to do at the time and was jailed multiple times for this. But despite his um, political agitation, uh, he went on, went through medical school, became a neurologist and kind of commingled this with his entry in interest in politics. And actually, he rose fairly high in the, eventually the monarchy was overthrown, a Republican government was instated, and he was actually appointed ambassador to Spain just in time to sign the Treaty of Versailles on, on behalf of Portugal, which is pretty insane. But he would go on to have quite a prolific career in neurology as well. Uh, he actually invented uh, cerebral angiography, which is the, like, injecting dye into the blood vessels of the brain, radio-opaque dye, so you can see it on an x-ray. This was one of the actual first successful attempts at visualizing the brain. So it was an enormous leap forward for not only clinical care, but also our understanding of how the brain's structure was. He would later be nominated twice for uh, his work on cerebral angiography for a Nobel Prize. However, it was for lobotomy that he would eventually win. The other famous character in attendance 
of this meeting was Walter Freeman Jr. He's an American neurologist who is most credited with popularizing the lobotomy. And in fact, it was he that invented the transorbital lobotomy that we're most familiar with today. So a little bit about his background. So he was born uh, in 1895. Uh, he majored in history at Yale and attended the University of Pennsylvania for medical school. By 1928, he was the first professor of neurology and chair of the Department of Neurology at George Washington University. And by 1931, found himself chairman of the AMA section on nervous and mental diseases. And by 1932, it actually wrote a very influential textbook on neuropathology. So he was a he was a very big deal in the not in in the international medical world, and specifically in the world of neurology. So all these people, all these ideas, were seething at this 1935 conference. And it's here that on the third day of the conference, there was a presentation. It's by a man named John Fulton. He was a, a primate researcher, and he had done a study where he had these two chimpanzees, uh, Becky and Lucy was their names. And he'd actually, so he had trained them to do tasks that were like meant to be frustrating and were like fairly cognitively intense. So it was like things like they would be in a cage and they would have a, a stick, a certain length or a, a piece of food, a certain length of away. And there would be another stick that was longer, um, just about that same length, not quite as far. So they could reach out with their hands to try and grab the stick that they knew was long enough, but it, it was too far away. So they had to use second order reasoning to find a stick that was in their cage to actually get the second stick and then get the food. So it's kind of a test of higher order thinking. It's very, it very interesting, it's kind of a cool experiment. So he trained them to do this and they eventually were very successful, but he found that they were very frustrated and they would get angry and they actually would do things like throw their feces at the examiners and yell and bare their teeth and they were just very angry they were frustrated for having to do this kind of a, a normal response i would say I honestly i think i would be frustrated so yeah so they, they were having this normal response and it was towards the end of their life so he decided to undertake an experiment and actually in two separate ex uh, operations removed both of their frontal lobes oh, so no. one one lobe at a time tested them the other lobe tested them and he found that while they were a lot less successful at um, actually getting the food, completing the task, they seemed to just be okay with that. Like, they didn't throw a fit. They didn't throw feces at the examiner. And in his own words, he said, quote, they seem to have joined the happiness cult and placed their burdens on the Lord. So when he said this, it was naturally, as all conferences was, there was a murmur of excitement and um, there was always a time for questions. So one of the people that stood up was Igaz Moniz. And he said, quote, if the frontal lobe removal prevents the development of experimental neuroses in animals and eliminates frustrational behavior, why would it not be feasible to relieve anxiety states in man by surgical means? As you can imagine, the Freudians in the, in the audience, and in fact, I think most people in the audience would have been very taken aback by the suggestion. He was proposing doing an experimental brain surgery, a brain damaging surgery on human beings as a test, as an ex a proof of concept idea. There was a hush over the audience and few people approached Moniz after this, except for one man, Walter Freeman. So thus would begin a long collaboration between the two. 
Um, and actually, uh, this would be the start of a very lifelong friendship for the two of them. So shortly after this display by Moniz and Friedman at, at the Congress, Moniz went on to put his ideas into practice. He secured the help of a local psychiatrist um, who ran a, an asylum at the time in Lisbon, Portugal, and Moniz decided to undertake his experiment. So what he did was uh, he invented a device called a leucotome. So as for all of our listeners, the, the brain is made up of islands of what we call gray matter, which are the actual cell bodies of neurons. And that covers kind of the surface of the, of the brain with all of its little indentations and gyri and sulci. Um, and beneath that, there's a, f a few little islands of gray matter as well. But mostly the internal anatomy of the brain is composed of what we call white matter, which is the connections between islands of gray matter. They're the, the, the axons of the, of the neurons. So what he proposed was going in with a, with a device which would cut basically cores, like a, a circular, a spherical hole in the actual white matter. And he'd be able to remove this part. And basically by doing so, he would essentially cut most, if not all, of the connecting fibers between the frontal lobe and the rest of the brain. So the way he did this was he, he had this device that he invented called the leucotome. And what it was is like kind of like a syringe, except when you depress the plunger, uh, a wire would stick out, forming like a semicircle of wire. And then you could turn this, carving out a, out a hole, little like a little island pocket in the brain. And then you could uh, retract the plunger, the wire would go back in, you can safely draw out the instrument. And what, so what he did was he carved six holes in each lobe, so six on each side. And he used this and published his results in a paper entitled Experimental Surgery in the Treatment of Certain Psychoses. Uh, and he actually sent a copy signed directly to Walter Friedman. And what, what, the, what he found was in the patients that he operated on in his initial series, uh, seven of which he claimed some sort of clinical recovery, which again, as you'll hear throughout the dis this discussion, it's a very, very ill-defined what is actual clinical recovery. So seven, he claimed clinical recovery. Seven, he claimed amelioration. And six, he claimed no result. What does amelioration mean? That's a great question. Yeah, I'm sure what it meant to him was that it's somehow better than when they started. What that means practically, I, I couldn't tell you. It could mean that they're just in a slightly less vegetative state. It could mean that they're more quiet. It could mean that they're not as rowdy. It truly is up to the reader's interpretation because it was so poorly defined. And no result, does that just mean no change? I think so. Yeah. What about bad results? He didn't report he, um, he. I don't think he published that. Mm. And an interesting kind of anecdote about these procedures is that they're, at the time, well, now brain surgery is very dangerous, but at the time, brain surgery was very, very dangerous. Um, basically, the only recourse you had if there was bleeding was to either put some kind of pressure on it, which mean, meant inserting some kind of other object into the area that was bleeding to put pressure to hopefully staunch the bleeding, or to gradually keep drawing out the blood with a syringe or some kind of pump um, until it stopped. Because the alternative would, that, would be that bleeding kept on going and going and going and built up pressure, which pushed on other structures of the brain, which eventually led to death. 
or significant disability. So this is a very dangerous operation. This is not something to be taken lightly, um, which is why it's fairly shocking that there aren't any adverse outcomes reported. Yeah, and it's it very crude too. If you think of neurosurgery nowadays, everything is so precise. Yeah, everything's mapped out exactly. You know where you cut and why. Like, yeah. what is the function of the brain there? Yeah, but they didn't know anything about that back then, or very limited. Very very little. Yeah, they had a they had a rudimentary idea of what the frontal lobes did because they had examined like people with you know, tumors of the frontal lobe and examined kind of the effect that that had on the people. And they had these experiments with chimps that they had presented at the meeting, but really not a whole lot more than that. It was, it was kind of barbaric. And so that, and I think that was the, the kind of perception, the general perception across the world at this time, that this was a kind of a shocking thing. Um, I think it's, well, we'll talk about this more a little bit later, but I think it's also important, though, to kind of hold people to the standards of their time. Remember, this is a this is a pre Nuremberg um, medicine. This is pre like any articulation of patients' rights. This is before really robust codes of ethics were published by most like major medical associations. It was kind of the wild west of medicine. That's not to excuse it, and it's certainly to say that these people were people same as now but i i think i i want to highlight that this he wasn't an necessarily that far out of the norm if that makes sense which is kind of horrifying in, in and of itself but then so running with this results then so this was done in portugal um it was published and it was picked up quickly by um walter freeman um he established a partnership with a man named james watts uh, who was a neurosurgeon, also at George Washington U- University. And they endeavored to do this operation on patients at George Washington. There was a problem, though. They planned to do these operations together, but Freeman wasn't a neurosurgeon. He was a neurologist. He had no surgical training. But yet, because of his experience, you know, in the medical community, and his um, influential textbooks on neuroanatomy that were read by most of the neurosurgeons, they actually kind of gave him a pass and just let him participate in the operating rooms with James Watts, the actual neurosurgeon. Now, this was started uh, initially under the condition that Watts had to be there at all times. Freeman was just there as an observer. But very quickly, this wasn't the case. For example, on their first operation, they did the same procedure. They used the, the leucotome that Moniz actually invented for this procedure. Um, they carved six holes in one side, six cores in the brain of a patient. And then Watts passed off the instrument to Freeman. And he did his six cores on the other side. And this, uh, this operation actually had pretty significant bleeding. As we mentioned, there weren't a lot of um, ways to address it. Thankfully, in this operation, the bleeding was eventually controlled. And the patient did eventually recover. However, postoperatively, they were delirious and were found to have lost bladder control. They were agitated and unable to communicate for at least several days. Once this cleared, um, the patient did make a pretty reasonable recovery, but it took about 18 days before she was finally discharged. And I, I wanted to, to read you this because I think it's very interesting. So this was a patient that presented with, I think, a primary complaint of anxiety 
um, maybe OCD, but I think just like significant anxiety. So after, after the surgery, when the patient was actually clear enough to respond, uh, Freeman actually recorded the dialogue that he had with this patient. Do you, do you mind kind of role-playing this for oh, me? Sure. Okay, so I'll, I'll be Freeman, you be the patient. So do you have any of your old fears? No. What were you afraid of? I don't know. I seem to forget. Do you remember being upset when you came here? Yes, I was quite upset, wasn't I? Well, well what was it about? I don't know. I seem to have forgotten. It doesn't seem important now. That's spooky. It's it's almost like a, a deep personhood. It's very, like, eerie, kind of uncanny valley situation. But this was considered uh, a success at the time. However, um, this particular patient, she would actually die five years later. It's, an, it's on, at the age of 68, so she was a little older, but it's unclear if this was actually a result of the operation. And however, despite this initial response, she was deemed a treatment failure by Friedman. He, he thought this was a treatment failure? He thought this was a treatment failure, well, yes. Why is that? Well, I think, I think based largely on um, longer-term follow-up, um, Friedman, for all his faults and for the imprecise way that he would categorize patients after all he wasn't he wasn't a modern day psychiatrist he wasn't really performing a detailed mental status in his kind of idiosyncratic way he was very good at long-term follow-up of patients so he did follow this patient for several years um, and her anxiety apparently returned to a baseline unclear of what deficits she had as a result of this operation though and like i mentioned she did die five years later although potentially not related to the operation but this is, this is a good time to kind of talk about the effects that a lobotomy had on a person. So um, while it wasn't totally understood at the time, the frontal lobe has a number of diverse effects. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, these were fairly imprecise surgeries. When you get down into the actual literature of, of the technique that they used, they were using landmarks to identify where blood vessels were. They had a, a fairly good idea of where they were spatially they just weren't sure what correlated to function to the degree that we are now um and there's a lot of like person-to-person -person variability that they just that they didn't account for i think largely because they weren't aware that that existed per se but i think it's also a fault of the technique in it's in and of itself so there was a wide variety of effects it, it affected different people differently because brains are idiosyncratic and because their techniques were imprecise but what would happen in a lot of people is they noted a marked decrease in like self-perception. So the ability to like perceive themselves doing something, plan ahead, things like that, things that impacted the self very intrinsically. Um, also noted a decrease in empathy, decrease in motivation. Um, in fact, a, a dramatic decrease in motivation, almost to the point of like catatonia of like not doing anything at all. In modern terms, we would call this abulia, um, and it's a specific to frontal. It's not specific to frontal lobe damage, but it happens very commonly in frontal lobe damage. And also, you could get the opposite. The frontal lobe is kind of has effects on its executive function, so it's like exerts control over the rest of the of the mind. So you'd get increases in impulsivity, uh, hypersexuality, and in some cases, this could be pretty devastating, like in, like spending all the family fortune on gambling or going out and womanizing. So the, these were kind of the effects that were commonly observed with lobotomy. You can imagine how some of these like 
decreased empathy, motivation, self-perception, you could conceptualize that as perhaps the opposite of anxiety. Um, so in that way, it could have been considered a success. Um, but I think it's important to note that these operations were performed fairly indiscriminately across a wide range of mental illnesses. So if you think of like schizophrenia, there's there's nothing that this would impact on schizophrenia, yet that was a very common cause for this surgery being being done. Anxiety uh, was also very common, personality disorders, alcoholism. And it was to a degree that actually a lot of prominent psychiatrists and opponents of lobotomy, because as, as this technique became more popular, it became more controversial, people called it a mercy killing of the psyche, or alternatively, they called lobotomy soul surgery uh, and very negative connotations. When you say lobotomy, I always think of one flew over the cuckoo's nest or description of that kind of a motivational apathetic character who has lost all sense of self yeah and I, I think that's that's exactly i think what would what would be described as the lobotomy personality by freeman and that in many cases would be considered a success so how do we define su success and failure of a lobotomy? Because there were some patients who thought that their surgery was a success, right? Or they, the lobotomy wouldn't have continued. Yeah, that, and that's a that's a really good point. Um, I think it's I think it's diff kind of difficult to attribute success or failure from like our perspective looking backwards. I like like I kind of mentioned. I, I can see someone valuing a decrease in self-perception if their like anxiety is to the point that they can't function. Anxiety, I mean, you could potentially think of anxiety as like a too much self-perception, too much inward thought. So this kind of numbing effect may be desirable in some cases. Or in some cases, um, maybe it's just the like the placebo effect. I mean, we know that people who get like arthroscopic surgery, for example, a modern day example, there's a huge placebo effect there. Or um, maybe it's just the fact that these people underwent such a horrific damaging surgery that the cognitive dissonance is just such that like it would be kind of unthinkable to imagine that, yeah, this I did this drastic thing and it didn't work or maybe worse. I think there's, there's a lot of motivation to ascribe some meaning to any kind of improvement. And the, it also begs the question, who was this a success for? Was it a success for the patient or was it a success for, you know, doctors of the patient and in the asylums? Was it a success for the patient's family members who just wanted to keep their the patients under control. Um, it was a means of control, I think. I think I, I think you're right. There's there's a number of examples of high higher functioning people seeking out lobotomy more than once. So um, it's very volitional on in in that subpopulation. But I think like I think you're right. I think a large a plurality, if not a major majority of patients if if they would have really if they would have had the wherewithal to really articulate themselves or have the risks and benefits explained and shown the results i, I don't think the patients I, I don't think a large percentage of patients would have agreed that this is actually in their best interests right like they didn't get informed consent and even if they had they didn't really have a lot of them didn't have the capacity to yeah. agree to the surgery yeah I, I think that's totally true. And in fact, um, we'll get to later, one of the kind of death knells of lobotomy was 
that eventually it was banned by the U.S. government in prisoners, um, in people who had guardians, and people who weren't able to consent. So they, that exact population. And basically when that was taken away, um, lobotomy fizzled out. There's a number of other factors that kind of account for that, but that was a pretty significant blow. So, and, and with that in mind, with the effects that this was wreaking on people, I, I think it's perhaps important to consider Freeman and Watts's viewpoint, maybe the family or even patient's viewpoint. I mean, at this time, there really weren't effective treatments, period. I mean, psychoanalysis works to a degree, but it only would work with certain conditions. Um, I mean, you have patients who are in asylums for years, if not decades, and families and doctors and, and the patients themselves were desperate for some sort of improvement. And all of a sudden comes this new surgery that's published in Time magazine and multiple journals and it's being picked up all over the country and this eminent neurologist is the one doing it. Um, and suddenly it looks like there's hope, not only for a treatment for mental illness, but actually potentially a cure. In preparation for this, I'd listened to a lot of podcasts and read a bunch of articles, and a, a lot of people characterize Freeman and um, some of the other people who do lobotomies as evil people. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I mean, I think you could certainly argue that what that they did evil, that they did things that were not good, not beneficial to patients. But I think they did it for good intentions, which, I mean, for all that matters, but... I think I think that is relevant in the discussion. I the way I see it is that maybe they had good intentions, but they were also starting from a very paternalistic kind of viewpoint that maybe wouldn't fly in this day and age. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, and it's again, it's it's pre World War II. It's pre Nuremberg laws. Um, Nure Nuremberg laws being the like articulations of patients' rights and and what the steps you need to like do and constraints on on um, engaging with patients before you do clinical trials on them. But you're right; it, w it was very paternalistic. This was um, oftentimes, or if not all the time, without what we would consider today full informed consent, a full understanding of the risks and benefits and alternatives. Um, and I don't think that existed in most patients, and it I. Had, certainly don't think they really refined their population down to who act they actually thought would benefit because they just assumed yeah probably everyone and i think one of my other problems with it is that maybe they started out with good intentions but along the way somewhere that that got lost in their hubris and in trying to keep going down a faulty road where they definitely would have seen the adverse outcomes they would have seen the patients who died during surgery, who died from complications of surgery, who, whose mental illness wasn't cured, and they didn't report that. And so I find that unethical. I, I don't disagree. And actually, that, that's a perfect segue in kind of, to kind of the next phase of the lobotomy. Where we left off, they had, they'd introduced the technique to the U.S., very quickly, they, just, they figured out that this, the core method that Moniz had developed wasn't very, number one, it wasn't very safe. Number two, it wasn't very effective. Um, so they actually devised a method of using kind of these dull blades, and they drilled holes on either side of the skull and would kind of kind of cut coronal sections off the frontal lobe in the, in the white matter. 
and this was a little more precise, had a lower risk of bleeding. And, and like I mentioned, there, there, they did make some effort to kind of localize where they were going. And they had like a certain number, they would cut holes in predetermined places. They knew they had a certain number of degrees that they could move the blade um, before they were out of the area that they wanted to target. So there was some effort at doing that. But notably, so they started doing this. This was in the late 30s, early 40s. Around this same time um, was the development of what's called the stereotactic technique, which is what we're familiar with in brain surgery today, which is like affixing this like metal apparatus to the head um, and then using imaging to precisely target the area that you're using and then adjusting within millimeters where you're going. Freeman and Watts had the opportunity to do that. That, that was coming out. They could have been very precise, but actually they opted for maximum damage. And in fact, they thought that was the, Freeman specifically, thought that was the therapeutic thing, causing the most damage to the frontal lobe that you can. Because he thought that he just needed to take it completely offline, and that was the objective. So he had the opportunity to, to walk it back, to be safer, to be less invasive. He chose not to. Potentially for hubristic reasons, because he believed that he alone had this cure. I feel like it's a terrible combination when faulty logic pairs with hubris. Um, and to take it a step further, so he, they had this technique, they like had a, you know, a rel reasonably well-established safety profile. Freeman took it again a step further and developed what is familiar to audiences today as the transorbital lobotomy, which is you go, you lift up the eyelid and go behind the orbit and punch through. And that's where you kind of make a prescribed series of cuts in the frontal lobe to cause, again, the maximum damage. And this was in 1946 that he developed this. And actually, this was a source of significant contention between Freeman and Watts. And again, here's another point where the paths diverge. Watts had a, had a few problems with this. Number one, he, he didn't think the transorbital approach was safe. He thought the the transphenoidal approach, which we talked about with the flat blades, was the way to go. It was safer, it was more reliable. He thought that was what should be done. Number two, he, he thought that Freeman as a neurologist, and specifically um, at what would happen later is Freeman would go around teaching this technique to psychiatrists and letting them practice on their own doing these transorbital lobotomies in asylums, again, with limited consent, with very little training. Um, he thought this was anathema. He thought only neurosurgeons should be doing this procedure. And third and finally, Watts felt Freeman was doing lobotomies too early. He thought that lobotomies should be reserved as a treatment of last resort for desperate patients where there had been documented failures of multiple prior treatments. Freeman thought that you should get it early on in the course of illness for people who weren't as sick as a prophylactic measure. Or in other words, cause the most damage to the frontal lobe before he felt the disease became entrenched so they wouldn't have anything to entrench into. So what this if they actually meant was kids. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th this caused a pretty significant rift between Freeman and Watts. Watts would continue practicing at George Washington University. He would continue to do lobotomies, but he would also do other neurosurgical procedures. Uh, and Freeman would actually take his kind of show on the road. He actually would drive just in his van, which he deemed the lobotomobile. It's pretty funny. Um, 
but he would just go around to different asylums and he would perform the procedure and he would teach it to the people there and he would go on and on and on and he actually he, he would use these expeditions which he called headhunting expeditions to follow up on patients and this is kind of how he got some of his longitudinal data but he but he would do this and he taught um, people all over the country and in fact um, between 1945 and 1955 so this is the era of the transorbital lobotomy there were about 40,000 people who were lobotomized in the United States. Not all by Friedman, but mostly one or two degrees of separation from Friedman. And with this, there were, there were a number of um, studies about the effectiveness. I think most quoted actually fairly similar to the results that came out of the initial case report by Moniz, which was about a third, a third, a third. Third got some degree better. A th third got um, quote-unquote cured, and the third had no result. Again, no, no real tracking of the adverse events. And again, like you mentioned earlier, there's, there's significant question as to what success means. And then the final thing that was the death knell of the lobotomy, you mentioned one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That popularized what could be the horrors and the misuse of lobotomy as a, as a tool for social control. Um, and there were actually a number of congressional inquests into lobotomy that resulted in significant regulation. Again, it was banned and prisoners was banned and people who couldn't consent, people with guardians. Um, and that was a huge portion of people who were getting lobotomies. And then finally, um, the, the kind of the last nail in the coffin of lobotomy was that it occurred in the 60s. Um, and the idea of a paternalistic physician or the government even in state institutions using surgical procedures to control people left a very bad taste in people's mouths, to say the least. Um, so it was essentially anathema. So lobotomy became heavily regulated, heavily stigmatized, and basically died out. And with this, um, Freeman continued performing lobotomies up until almost the end of his life, uh, although he was considered essentially a pariah for most of the end of his career. Um, I think the medical community shifted away from lobotomy with the advent of the first antipsychotic Thorazine, which is in the early 50s. And quickly people found that this wasn't in the best interests of patients in the majority of cases. So he was banned from operating in virtually all institutions. And eventually he was left with just one in California. And actually in his last operation, in February of 1967, uh, his last transorbital lobotomy ended with a death on the operating table, be hemorrhage. And shortly afterwards, Friedman's career was over. He retired and he died in 1972. And with him, the lobotomy died with him. That's not to say that psychosurgery is essentially dead, but it's different. And this, I think, has left a stain on the history of psychiatry that has been difficult to recover from. So I wonder, what, what do you think about the idea of psychosurgery in general? Was it something specific about Freeman and his lobotomy? Or is the idea of using surgery to correct a mental illness, is there something wrong about that? I think it's kind of intuitive that we think it's as simple as an area of the brain, but from what we know, it's we, we know so little about this. Psychiatry is still mostly unknowns. So it, I think the Labani was just a much too simplistic view. And just knowing that there's so much you don't know, how could you go about and do surgery, even if you expected a third of the people to 
you know, have improvement of their symptoms, you don't know who's in performing the surgery, whether that patient is going to improve or suffer terrible consequences, or even if they do improve, maybe be a shell of a person that they were. Yeah, I, th- I think there's there's something just awful about the idea of imposing that on someone. And I think that's in contrast to what I would consider modern psychosurgery, like deep brain stimulation, like a, an implant of that. It's in a very specific area, minimally invasive. It's like the process of informed consent is very thorough. Um, and I feel like we have like, and I feel like it doesn't fundamentally alter who a person is. I don't know what your thoughts are. Right. It definitely wouldn't be so extreme as just cutting out chunks of the brain. Yeah. Essentially doing something that's irreversible. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. So I know we're talking about lobotomies. When we do talk about lobotomies and educate the general public about, you know, the horrors of psychiatry, do you think there's a point in doing that? Or do you think that leads to mistrust of psychiatry as a field? Um, first, I think I think there is a point. I think even if the only outcome was more with mistrust, I think I think it's worth discussing. I think it's it's something that deserves to be, um, you know, have the disinfectant of sunlight and um, be out and discussed openly. I think I think there's value of that in and of itself. And second, I think um, the fact that we're having a very like frank discussion about about the like the horrors of lobotomy the the lack of informed consent the um, horrible conditions it placed on patients and their families and the paternalistic and the manipulative aspects of it i think the fact that that we that we recognize those concerns really shows how far our fields has progressed and i think despite this being again like a stain on the history of our field i i think talking about it is as much a sign of the progress that we've had as it is the backwardness that was. Right. We're not just sweeping it under the rug and pretending like it didn't happen. And as we're talking about these things, it becomes apparent that things like informed consent exist today. Mm -hmm. Um, We have ethics committees, we have IRBs for clinical trials. So it's very difficult to even do experiments on chips <laughs> these days. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think and I think for good reason, right? I, the the rules are there because they've been broken in the past. Well, so there you have it. That that is the history of lobotomy. Well, thank you for having this discussion with me. I thought it was it was very interesting reading about the history and um, how this affected our our field today. And absolutely, one of the most interesting like shocking stories in the history of psychiatry. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Thank you for listening to the History of Madness podcast. More of our episodes can be found on your podcast platform of choice. Please like, follow, and leave a review. It really helps us grow the show.